Hello and welcome to this month's podcast from Amnesty International. In this podcast, we're going to hear from Igor Sutiagin, a prisoner of conscience who suddenly became a free man after the biggest spy swap since the Cold War. It was very, very important for me and for my, my family to know that we are not alone in this world, uh, that people believed in my innocence. We'll also hear from the mother of a human rights defender shot dead earlier this year in Mexico while helping an indigenous community. She is travelling back to the country to demand justice and retrace her son's footsteps. And Fotis Filipu, Amnesty International EU team campaigner, tells us about the recent mission to Slovakia where school children are still being segregated because of their ethnic origins. I want to study, write, read, do maths. We want to be with the white kids. But before all that, here are some of Amnesty's major news stories this month. Amnesty International criticised the TV confession of an Iranian woman, Sakhadeh Mohammadi Ashtiani, awaiting execution by stoning for adultery. She appears to implicate herself in the murder of her husband. However, so-called confessions broadcast on television have repeatedly been used by the authorities to incriminate individuals in custody. Many have later attracted these confessions, stating that they were coerced to make them sometimes under torture or other ill-treatment. Meanwhile, in neighbouring Afghanistan, Amnesty International has condemned the first Taliban executions by stoning carried out since 2001. A couple were stoned to death for eloping a Taliban-controlled village in Kunduz, North Afghanistan. The Taliban and other insurgent groups should be investigated and prosecuted for war crimes, demanded Amnesty International, following a UN report showing a rise in targeted killings of civilians in Afghanistan by anti-government fighters. In the Yemen, the authorities are sacrificing human rights in the name of security as they try to confront threats from Al-Qaeda, Zaida Shia rebels in the north and address growing demands for succession in the south. A new Amnesty International report, Yemen cracking down under pressure, highlights how the government is increasingly resorting to repressive laws and illegal methods to silence critics and respond to the challenges it faces. Now some good news. After 11 years in a Russian prison, a researcher who always maintained he was not guilty of espionage was suddenly a free man after the biggest spy swap of the post-Cold War era. Now exiled in London and separated from his family, he wonders what his future holds and tells Amnesty what happened when he received the letters you sent. I'm, I'm Igor Sutyagin. I'm the physicist and historian and I stood uh, in the Russian prisons for 11 years. I cannot count how many prisons and uh, camps I, I visited. But the very beginning it was a Kaluga prison, then I was moved to Lefortovo famous KGB, FSB prison. Then I stood in Matroska Tishina in Moscow, a general criminal prison. And then it was Kazan prison in Tataria. And then it was Izhevsk prison in Udmurtia. Then I had a camp colonia, then moved to city of Sarapul. Then from uh, Udmurtia I was moved to Arhangelsk and approximately five months ago I was moved from there to Holmogore 
<coughs> village Danilova, that is 70 kilometers from Arkhangelsk. And that was my latest and I hope the last. Nearly all this time I, uh, how to say that, have been receiving letters from Amnesty International. Uh, it was very, very important for me and for my, my family to know that we are not alone in this world. Uh, that people believed in my innocence. Um, it, it was really very great pleasure just to receive them, because in the prison uh, even a single letter is the great event. And the prison is the world where nothing happens. And even uh, one letter is the event, really serious event. And for several minutes you are absolutely happy just, you know, having having that in your hands. Uh, these letters also prevent some undesirable, I say so, undesirable actions of the prison administration, because somehow they uh, very much dislike to be in the lights of the public opinion, public attention. And uh, this flow of the letters proved very clear to them that this specific person is somehow untouchable. So it's, it could be dangerous to, to touch him, to, you know, to press him. And uh, that in that way, the Amnesty International letters really defended me. And uh, they could and they can and they will defend all other people who are still in the same situation. For the nearest future, I'm just going to, to, gain, uh, to gain the strength just to recover from this prison life, just to learn once again how to live in the free world, just to decide what, what I want, how to live further, to understand what is this world now after 11 years uh, when I did not live in, in it, living in the world where nothing happens. Another prisoner of conscience, Mexican Raul Hernandez, was also released this month. We've been campaigning for his release since November 2008, and on Friday the 27th of August, he was acquitted by a judge in Guerrero State and immediately released. This fantastic news is a very welcome step, but now Amnesty International want the Mexican authorities to investigate his unfair imprisonment and compensate him fully. If you want to get involved with helping prisoners of conscience, we have our annual letter-writing marathon coming up. For more information, get in contact with your national Amnesty International office. Around 300 kilometres east of Guerrero State lies San Juan Copala, a community of the indigenous Triqui group, one of the poorest and most marginalised ethnic groups in Mexico. It declared itself an autonomous municipality in 2007, which means it governs itself through the traditional indigenous practices and does not recognise the authority of existing public officials. Members of Ubisort, who in part come from the neighbouring Triqui community, have repeatedly fired rounds into and over San Juan Copala to terrorise the population. Our next feature by Javier Farge, our America's press officer, is an interview with the mother of a Finnish human rights defender as she travels back to Mexico to try to resolve the tragic case of her son's death while trying to help the people of San Juan Capala. On the morning of 27th of April 2010, a convoy of human rights defenders 
political activists and journalists departed from the town of Huajuapan de Leon in the Mexican state of Oaxaca to visit the indigenous community of San Juan Copala to take badly needed food and medicines. As the convoy approached the community, a group of between 20 armed men attacked them. By the time they left, two people had been killed, Beatriz Alberta Betty Cariño Trujillo and a young Finnish activist Yuri Yacola. They were both human rights defenders. Ever since they died, Betty's husband and Jerry's parents have been fighting for justice. They want those who were responsible for their crime to be found and put on trial. Jerry's parents have decided to travel to Mexico, and on the eve of their emotional trip, Amnesty International spoke to Eve, Jerry's Yacola's mother. I began by asking her about the visit to Mexico. Can you explain to us the purpose of your visit to Mexico, please? Oh, well, we have lost our son, and we want to get justice for him. We'll travel to Mexico to find out how the investigation of the murder of Yuri and Betty Carino is processing. And uh, we find it very important that the murder is carefully investigated, and those who are involved in this crime they will be fairly punished. Can you explain to me, or probably to people who don't know very much about it, what took Yuri to Mexico from far away Finland? What, what is it that motivated him to go to such a faraway country like Mexico, please? He was very interested in, in justice. He worked in uh, fair trade, but uh, he thought fair trade is not enough. He, he, I would say he wanted a fair world. And uh, justice was important to him, but it was justice for all the people, not only for the people in rich northern countries. From the Mexican people, Yuri learned a new concept, which he found very important and beautiful, la vida digna, uh, life with dignity and self-esteem. Now, um, as you know, um, Amnesty International and other human rights organizations have been campaigning to make sure that the government puts in place measures to protect human rights defenders. Do you believe that your visit to Mexico would at least highlight the issue of the protection that human rights defenders need in Mexico? I hope so. I hope so very much. We have understood that human rights rights defenders work in danger and threat in Mexico. Yuri's and Betty's case is one example, of course. They, they were trying to help people who, who needed help, but they, they were killed in, in that work. Uh, I find it very important to, to protect those people who, who are defenders of human rights. How do you feel as a person going as a person going back to the place where unfortunately your son was killed? It's it's hard to say. It's hard to say. In a way, we want to follow the footsteps of Yuri, visit the places that he visited, meet the people with whom he lived and worked, and hear what they can tell us about our son's last weeks. I I don't know how how we can stand it. In a way, of course, I'm afraid of it. But anyway, we want to do it. I think there's nothing so horrible than to lose own child. 
we knew that he, he was happy in Mexico, in Oaxaca. He loved Oaxaca, and those people wanted to, to help them and, and share every day with them for one year. He could stay there only two months, a bit more, but I know he was happy there. This year we travelled to Slovakia to follow up on the ban on discrimination and segregation in the Slovak school system, only to find that thousands of Romani children are still trapped in substandard education and a school system that keeps failing them. Fotis Filipu, EU team campaigner, finds it hard to contain his frustration at what they found on mission while talking with those affected. It's absolutely unbelievable that in, in the 21st century Europe, uh, children are still separated in schools on the basis of their ethnic origin. Um, and that's what's happening in Slovakia between children from the majority population and Roma kids. I want to study, write, read, do maths. We want to be with the white kids. Do you do any homework? No. Can you take books? textbooks and notebooks home with you? No, we ask them if we could, but they don't give us any. Saying we would rip them and throw them away. These Roma children are among the many who tell a story of entrenched anti-Roma discrimination attitudes within the education system and policy failures which maintain the segregation and separation in Slovak schools. Olga Bujnikova is the director of an elementary school and nursery. White parents only see them as having rights, and they're scared that their children will be infected. Some of them just don't want their children to go to school with Roma, because in the past there were parents who moved their children to other schools only because there were Romani peoples there. What, what you see actually when you go to, to different schools, uh, when, when you see that separation, when you see that the only reason why these children are, are, are put in, in these separate schools is just really the, their skin color or, or their, their ethnic origin or things that are absolutely based on, on prejudice and stereotypes. And it's actually very concerning that people who work, teachers, educational professionals that work with these kids hold these views and are expected to develop those children and, and allow them to basically have any future opportunities. Mental disabilities occur more frequently in the Romani children because there is genetic degeneration due to interbreeding. Also, there is social backwardness in terms of living conditions. We've been to, to various schools where uh, Roma would be completely separated, either in, in different, they could be in a different corridor, for example, and the corridor could be locked uh, so that they have no, no, no interaction with, uh, with uh, children from the majority population. Um, in, in other cases, children would be even locked in their classrooms, uh, Roman children. Um, we've seen cases where uh, Roma would be studying upstairs, while uh, non-Roma kids from the majority population would be studying uh, downstairs. Segregation happens from very early in elementary school or even from kindergarten. 
Ladislav Husa just wants the best for his children, but struggles to find a way against the discrimination. Before communism, Roma and white kids were together in schools. White people were complaining about Roma, that they don't let them be and they steal from them. But it wasn't true. They wanted Roma children to be separated from white children, and they achieved it. They got their way. Um, Romani children, are, thousands of Romani children, are often placed in, in special schools or classes for pupils uh, with mental disabilities, or even in ethnically segregated schools that offer a reduced uh, curriculum. I'd be happy if my children could go to the same school as white children, so that they could learn the same subjects. I'd like my children to be able to speak German or English, and if I have to pay for it, I will. It really has a very negative effect on their future. It really does not allow them to, to, to exit that, that, that uh, cycle of, of poverty that, and discrimination that they are in. And it does not allow them to fully participate in, in, in the Slovak and, and European society. There are a number of ways you can get involved and take action to stop segregation in Slovakian schools. If you go to amnesty.org forward slash activism dash centre, it's all there. So that brings us to the end of the podcast. Until next month, thanks for listening. Amnesty International.